Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a very great pleasure uh, to be here with you again. Uh, I'm Neil Ferguson. I am uh, the Philippe Roman uh, Visiting Professor at the LSE Ideas Unit this year. And it's my great pleasure to be here uh, tonight to introduce uh, my friend, uh, Dambisa Moyo, uh, to you and to then uh, invite her to introduce her new book to you. Dambisa Moyo uh, was born very recently, shockingly recently, uh, from my very vantage point, in, in Zambia. Uh, she uh, studied at both Harvard and Oxford. Uh, she worked uh, for many years at uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, well, not that many. And uh, she, uh, I think, be made the, the, the leap from investment banking to being a public intellectual uh, with the publication of, of Dead Aid a couple of years ago, her uh, devastating critique of uh, the policies of aid pursued uh, by the West towards Africa since World War II. Uh, her new book, uh, How the West Was Lost, has just uh, been published, and that's going to be the subject of her, her talk tonight. She's going to introduce the book, then we're going to have a conversation, and then you're going to join in. And in order that there's time for her uh, to sign copies of her book, uh, we will probably wind up the proceedings uh, at about a quarter to eight. So uh, that's the order of, of battle. Uh, now all I want to do is to invite you to give a very warm welcome to Dambisa Moya. Thank you very much, Neil, for leaving your watch as well, because I have no watch, and I was saying I'm, going to, I'm quite worried I'm going to talk too much. Um, but I've got a number of people in the audience to signal to me the sort of cut-off, no more speaking signal, so hopefully I won't go on for too long. Um, thank you very much for being here. In my day, um, on a Thursday, you would never, ever go to a lecture. Um, you'd be out in the pub, so I'm impressed that people are here and have taken the time to be here to hear um, my thoughts and views about where we are uh, in terms of global economics um, and where uh, I see the world um, currently and, and sort of in the next several decades. Um, I actually, this is sort of deja vu because I was here, um, as Neil pointed out, a couple of years ago in this very same slot talking about dead aid um, and why it is that aid wasn't working and why there were some problems um, in terms of uh, um, generating the sort of good intentions that we'd all hoped. Um, when I started writing this book, I called my parents. Um, I speak to them very regularly, and I said, oh, I've got this idea for this book, and I'm really excited about writing it, about um, some of the issues around the, the West, the US and Europe, and um, you know, economically what they're doing wrong. My parents said, why, why the heck would you do that? It seems so distant um, from talking about aid to Africa and development. And actually, um, I'm sure many, maybe many people have that view as well. Why is this such a big leap away from my original, or my first book? And actually, um, there's an overarching theme between dead aid and how the West was lost, and that is the idea of unintended consequences. Good intentions um, that yield bad outcomes. So obviously, with respect to dead aid, the idea was um, we see uh, dire poverty in Africa, and we think we, need, we should do something, but uh, we think we should do that by giving aid, and of course you know the end of the story, uh, it's, it yields bad outcomes. And similarly, what I'm going to do today 
is illustrate for you how over the past 50 years in the West, not just the United States or the UK, but across Western countries, there's been a systematic and deliberate uh, policy agenda that has yielded, um, very often with good intentions, that has yielded uh, bad outcomes, uh, many of them which we're suffering uh, today. So what I thought I would do is just start by saying, um, as many people here who are economists know, there's sort of three key areas, uh, three key ingredients that drive economic growth. And those are capital, labor, and productivity. And it's not just the quantity of these things that matter, it's also the quality of these things. And what I hope to illustrate and show you today is how, through these deliberate policies, um, Western governments have managed to erode their economic stance um, over the last several decades to such a point that they're now on a on path of economic decline. Um, I will also say that very often when you hear people talk about um, the current economic dynamics, and it's quite apropos to be talking to you guys about this today because obviously President Hu Jintao is visiting the United States, but people focus so much on what China is doing, and there's almost an obsession of what's going on in China, um, and I actually think it's to the detriment of focusing on what's happening in the West. And so when we talk about convergence, uh, it's not just about the rise of China, it's actually convergence because Western countries are, are on the decline. So what I'm gonna do is start off with capital. And um, as, as many of you will know, capital is simply money. And we know already what the statistics are around debt and deficits around the world. It's pretty clear, uh, if you look at the US and Europe, we're still suffering from, uh, most recently, the financial crisis. Um, places like the United States, aside from, and, and across Europe, having um, close to 10% unemployment rates, have masses of debt, um, 70, 80%, some of them over 100%. Uh, if you add in pensions, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, the estimates of what we actually owe uh, is staggering. Um, some people say it's 500% of GDP in some of these, uh, uh, of the, uh, should we call them, uh, peripheral countries. So I think pigs has now been deemed illegal and politically incorrect. But the point of the matter is, um, it's just as in terms of a snapshot, we know that we have these massive debts, massive deficits, um, but a lot of what has happened in terms specifically of the, with respect to the uh, capital story is around the housing crisis. And I really want to impress upon you all that my book is not just about a snapshot in time. It's about a systematic policy agenda over many decades. In the case of housing specifically, which has ended us in the situation we've got massive debt and deficits, um, it was really the housing for all policy in the United States. And this was a government policy which was supported by both Democrats and Republicans and su subsequently uh, permeated much of the Western economies. Um, but the simple idea was that the governments felt that we need to provide housing for everybody. That's the good intention. Of course, we want to provide shelter for all. The problem was the manner in which these, this agenda was structured. And specifically, um, it was the idea that the government provided guarantees and subsidies to the broader population in US and Europe, um, even encouraging people to invest their incomes into housing when actually there might have been other um, asset classes, which we'll come to, like, like bonds and stocks that might have actually been done, uh, yielded better returns. So we've ended up now with a situation where places like the United States, as I said, you have 70, 80% share of GDP is in debt. 
uh, sorry, debt-to-GDP ratios, you've got 11, 10-11% deficits, um, and you compare that to a place like China, they have almost $3 trillion in cash and uh, through this, uh, their reserves, and in addition, they have um, a you know, minus 0.5% deficit, and they have, by some estimates, 9% debt-to-GDP ratio. So comparing those balance sheets. I will also underscore one other point with regards to capital, and that is, whereas capital in the United States and Europe tends to be very diffused across individuals, um, corporations, um, and uh, um, pension funds and hedge funds and banks and so on. As we know, the Chinese model is one where a lot of the assets, capital, is actually still held in the government's hands. And this is important because as we start to forge ahead to deal with some of the big, um, somewhat intractable problems around resource uh, resource scarcity in years to come. By the way, people will know that um, by 2050, there are going to be 9 billion people on the planet, uh, so estimates go. We have to start thinking about ways in which governments can act strategically. Um, and obviously, the, the fact that the Chinese have a lot of money in the hands of the government means that they've got much more flexibility in terms of uh, attacking some of these problems. Um, I'm on a finite timeline, so I'm going to move quickly into labor, and then we'll talk about productivity. With respect to labor, we actually know a lot of the big headline statistics. We know that there remain serious pension problems and serious health care problems um, around not just the UK, again, US and Europe. If you look at pensions, one of the big problems, and I think this is um, uh, something that we don't focus enough on, is that we simply don't know how much money we owe as a, pu as a public. How much does the government owe in public pension liabilities? There are lots of estimates that go around, but the fact of the matter is that it tends to be treated as an off-balance sheet item. In other words, nobody wants to talk about it. It's kicked to the future. Um, yesterday, there was an article in one of the newspapers talking about how the U.S. Owns, owes about $2.5 trillion, which I, I think is quite a modest estimate. But the fact that the U.S. has $4 trillion a year in terms of GDP, it does become quite worrying if we actually don't even know uh, what the real number is, and the estimates are at $2.5 Now, you might be saying, well, you know, what's the big deal with that? But remember that whole industries have been decimated specifically because of pensions. The auto industry, the airline industry, steel industry as are examples. Um, if you look at some of the data, between now and 2050, and 2050 is a big marker. It's when we think there'll be 9 billion people on the planet, and I'll keep coming back to this number um, throughout the, the conversation. But if between now and 2050, there are going to, there's going to be an increase of over 250% of people who are over the age of 65 in the West. So this is a serious, serious problem. Similarly and linked to that is obviously the issue of demographics, which affects labor. As we know, relatively few young people versus um, the, the broadening and increasing uh, older population um, around the world, but also particularly in the West. Um, some of you might be aware, according to Eurostat, 2010 was the first time that Europe has seen a decline. Uh, it's now on the declining path um, in terms of its population. Um, and this is quite an important thing, given that we need young people to work and sustain um, the pension liabilities. In the book, I call pensions the next big Ponzi scheme, because it's pretty clear that we're not, we don't have enough young people coming in to pay for the, uh, for the older generation. 
However, there's not much going on in terms of specifics um, that I feel in terms of specifics to deal with both the pension and the health care problem. I was just looking at some statistics um, on the way here. Uh, there's a, re a new report, which I would encourage you to read, um, that's just literally popped onto my screen today um, from McKinsey, saying that the UK in 2007 spent over um, £4 billion pounds, um, just dealing with the obesity issue. And that's a huge issue vis-a-vis -vis, uh, type 2 diabetes, which we also estimate is going to be quite significant. They estimate it's going to be about 165% increase uh, around health care costs in that area. Um, we know these things, but what are we really doing about them uh, is not clear. Already in the UK, 75% of the costs associated with the NHS are linked to long-term diseases, um, so to the older population. This is enormous, and as the population continues to age, will be quite significant. So with respect to labor, it's not just pensions and health care and the changing dynamics of the demographics. There's a more fundamental issue, and that's the education. And it's quite interesting to be at LSE to talk to you about this issue. Because I just recently, and I was talking to, um, to Neil a, a moment ago about this, there are estimates that say that in this, cut, in this country, 23% um, of school leavers cannot add 50 plus 2 in their head. Um, and these, you don't have to believe me, go and Google the OECD PISA statistics, and you'll have a look and see that in just a decade, Britain has gone from seventh uh, in reading to number 17 in the world. In mathematics, it's gone from the, um, number 8 to number 24. Um, the standards are clearly slipping, and this is critically important, and we'll come back to this point later, because in the context of uh, what uh, competitive edge Britain, Europe, and America have, education is absolutely a big hook. The numbers and statistics I've just outlined for you from the OECD are similar in the United States. Um, in fact, uh, President Obama has talked about the fact that in just one, gener one generation, the uh, United States has gone from being the first, uh, the, you know, number one, uh, in terms of college graduates to now number 12. And people, um, some of the studies I've seen have talked about how this is the first generation of Americans that are less educated than their parents. So there's clearly a structural problem um, that we're just ignoring. Um, the third thing is total factor productivity. And again, the economists in the room will know that, first of all, this is a very important ingredient. It accounts for about 60% for why countries grow and others don't. But it's also, um, and I can say this because I'm an economist, it's kind of a lazy catch-all for um, economists. It kind of encapsulates everything else, everything from rule of law, transparency, um, and technology. But importantly, if you look at productivity gains uh, in the past uh, couple of decades, or several decades, um, I think this is a critical ingredient because clearly the computer age and innovation have been quite significant in driving productivity gains uh, in the United States and in Europe. However, with respect to productivity, although there have been gains uh, in the US and Europe, there clearly have been even more significant gains in China. In fact, in terms of uh, productivity gains, China's productivity gains in the past several decades have been the highest recorded uh, in the history of collecting data on, on, uh, uh, on productivity. Now, some people in the room might think, oh, yeah, right, they're stealing technology. They're actually, you know, it's, it's actually got nothing to do with um, real produ uh, productivity. They're actually starting from a low base. But the fact of the matter is that they are on a very innovative and very aggressive path to increase productivity, and they are, and they are quite successful at it. Um, 
I, I didn't highlight when I talked about labor the specific unintended consequences, but I hope it's quite clear that in the case there we wanted to give pensions and obviously uh, that wasn't, uh, it hasn't come to fruition as we would have liked. But with respect to productivity, how is it that we have these unintended consequences? And I'm just going to spend a few minutes here and say that it really has to do with the idea of globalization. The fact that in the 1980s, we all got quite taken by the idea of becoming much more international and much more integrated. But the fact of the matter is that it has hurt, although it has increased the, uh, the incomes of many people around the world, which is a good thing, uh, at the same time, it has hurt uh, Western societies. And there's a wonderful paper that came out um, from the University of Chicago um, comparing 1950 to 1980, so that period when the West was largely closed and protectionist, to the period between 1980 and 2007. And actually, if you look at the United States as an example, and the same applies for the UK and across much of Europe, the income, the um, GDP growth is identical, and the US 2.1% average over that period. So clearly something is not working. Um, we've got these great intentions and we're obviously not executing well enough to get gains. Um, I'll obviously talk more about it when, in Q&A, but let me just end up by saying, um, as far as I can see, the West has sort of two choices. Um, one choice is that it remains open, uh, integrated uh, with the rest of the world, supports uh, trade flows and capital flows and even the movement of, of labor. And I actually support that. I think that there's enough evidence to show that uh, we, have, you know, we have the most significant gains in, in people moving out of poverty in a world where uh, there's much more freedom of movement of trade and capital and so on. However, the problem with that model is that it does rely on people, other countries playing fair, and we'll talk about that, in this, I'm sure, during Q&A. Um, but it also means that Western countries have to prioritize the big structural problems and, um, over the tactical issues. What do I mean by that? The things like education, infrastructure, um, energy efficiency, those are the big issues that we all know. They're sort of the big elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Instead, we focus on very short-term things, such as deficit funding and debts, and which are very important, but the implications over the longer term for whether or not we can stem an economic decline um, actually really hinge on these more structural issues. The other option, of course, is to become more protectionist. And as an African, I can tell you that it's not that far a leap. Um, I hear so much from uh, Americans and Europeans saying oh, it's outrageous what the Chinese are doing and manipulating their currency. Well, I'll tell you what. Africans have been locked out of the, the markets in the West for many years. And that's not to say, uh, and I'm talking specifically about agriculture markets, obviously, because of the common agriculture policy and so on. And it's not to say that protectionism is this great solution um, but it is to say that I think the move from you know, being more free and being more open to trade towards more protectionism, if you will, um, is not that great a leap. And indeed, if you look at some of the debate in the US now, there seems to be much more of a movement away from uh, trade protectionism being sort of a fringe issue um, into being much more of a uh, more central issue uh, for debate. I'm going to end up by saying the following. Part of the problem with um, our political systems and the systems in the West that make it almost impossible to deal with these structural problems has to do with the fact that our politicians are rewarded uh, and voted for dealing with short-term issues. We do not reward or penalize politicians for talking about the more long-term intractable problems that I've outlined and as I said before, we all recognize. 
Now, the issue here is I am not saying that democracy is bad and we should all become non-democratic. What I am saying is we've got to find ways to strip out the politics. The cycles in the place like the United States for every two years are simply unsustainable in terms of, uh, and are simply not beneficial in terms of actually meaningfully solving the structural problems that I've talked about here. And, but there are a lot of solutions. Um, you could think about, maybe at the extreme, thinking about having a model of uh, political cycles much more like Brazil, which has sort of one term, but it's seven years. And it just gives politicians the space to think longer term. As you know, in the United States, it feels more like a two-year cycle because of midterms and presidential elections um, combined every two years. Um, so that's one thing. The other option, perhaps, is to think about things around incentives. We know that incentives are basically the foundation of why Europe, the United States, have become the, the, and excelled to be the economies that they have become. But for over, t over time, there's been a clear and um, deliberate uh, setup of policies that have encouraged uh, people to not be incentivized to do the quote unquote right thing. And again, well, we can talk more about this later. In concluding, let me just end by saying this. When you think about Europe versus the US, uh, US, the U Europe and the US versus China, I would say the following. It is pretty clear that China is going to keep growing. It's pretty clear that China is going to keep growing faster than the US um, and Europe. The only thing that we don't know at this point, um, or we don't really have a clear indication of, is when and whether China can actually converge to per capita living standards of Western Europe and the United States. And that is largely because, not because of their ability to execute on their programs of economic development. It's much more to do with the fact that we do live in a world of finite resources. And unless technology and innovation step in, the issue of resources becomes a very real and potent problem. So I will leave you with that, and I look forward to your questions. And I know I speak incredibly quickly, but I hope you understood what I said. <laughs> Well, thanks very much indeed, uh, Dambisa. I'm afraid the Labour Party obviously hasn't yet heard your call for a longer political cycle since the lifespan of a shadow chancellor has been reduced to three months today, which I think must be a record. Um, I, I, I now see where you're coming from. There's, a, there's, there's now, of course, quite a literature on uh, the, the West and, and the rest, and uh, it's growing every day. You're clearly closer to Martin Jakes. Uh, when China rules the world, which I guess came out a year or two ago, you're closer to Fareed Zakaria's post-American world uh, than you are to the more sanguine accounts of someone like Joe Joffe, who says, uh, forget China, they're bound to stumble, the US will be all right, it always is. So that, that's, that's really the debate at the moment, and we don't know who will be right. But I have a slightly different question to ask you. Why do you care if it's all up for the West? I mean... I mean, you're from Zambia. Uh, does it really, does it, I mean, why, why should you care if finally the West gets it uh, after having run the world for, what, 200, 300 or, or so years, not to the great advantage of, of Africa? Um, do you identify with the West personally? Um, all very easy questions, of course. Um, I'm African, so the Africans in the room, we can all give a cheer. <laughs> As somebody said to me recently, <laughs> um, look, Neil, the fact of the matter is it's absolutely essential 
for the world that the United States and Europe get it right. They are still the largest economies in terms of the share of global GDP. They are still the largest economies, the United States in particular, in terms of per capita incomes. Um, they're, in, they're, they're intertwined with the developing world, clearly. I mean, just look at China, the China-US trade statistics uh, as an example. Um, it's absolutely important that they get it right. The United States continues to underwrite public goods globally, um, which is something I talk about extensively in the book. Um, but fundamentally, we cannot pretend that we don't live in an integrated world. It's, it's important that the quote-unquote leader of the world gets it right economically, make sure that they don't have a situation, which they do now, of so many people who are unemployed and disaffected, to such a point that we start e exporting disaffection. You can't have 10% or 30, 30 million Americans out of the manufacturing workforce and, and expect that that won't have implications or knock-on effects for the rest of the world. If the United States essentially continues down this path, um, it's very clear that it will continue to erode it on itself and sort of rapaciously feed on itself. Uh, we need innovation, we need R&D, we need technology, and that still to this day comes from the West. They've got to get the story right. They've got to sort this out. The competitive advantage in the West is clearly around R&D. They've moved past agriculture, manufacturing, and even services. They've got to focus on the things where they have a, cut, a cutting edge and advantage. The most uh, intractable global problems, whether it's poverty in Africa or even around the world, in fact, you don't even have to go to Africa. Around the corner, you can find poverty. Poverty, energy efficiency, climate change, um, you know, whether you know, with a lack of water globally, all these issues will require innovation. And basically, to this day, the innovation, the best universities in the league tables are still in the West. The ability for people to actually transform and become entrepreneurs and innovation is still coming from the West. And it's absolutely essential that the government get it right so that we can continue to foster that. And I don't have to come here and say that people can add 50 plus 2. What but what if that doesn't happen? What if your advice is disregarded and, and China becomes uh, the biggest economy in the world and China becomes the leader in, for example, green technology? Will that make the world a worse place? Should we be worried about that fundamental prospect of a Chinese-dominated world? I guess that's really what I'm, I'm driving at. Okay, so it's not the first time that China and, and uh, India have been the largest economies on the planet. In the 1500s, if you look at uh, Angus Madison's work, they were already large economies. And in fact, if I had been there then, I would have written a book called uh, not, not How the West Was Lost, but How China Was Lost in, in Anticipation of Their Decline, because we subsequently knew, or now know, that obviously they completely eroded that, that decline. My problem is not with a world uh, necessarily where China is number one. I mean, in fact, in terms of GDP, that could happen in the next decade or so. Um, my problem is more about the path to that place. If it's not managed in a very systematic and proper way, um, and by that I mean issues around resources that I've alluded to, arable, water, uh, arable land, water, energy, uh, and, and uh, minerals, if that, that is not managed in a, in a constructive manner, which it clearly isn't, there is no international discussion around these issues, um, we could end up with a lot more conflict, a lot more wars. Um, of course, the end game, uh, who knows what could actually happen if China were in charge. Maybe they would ban uh, religion. I mean, we, we have no idea what that's going to look like. But just in anticipation now of the voracious appetite of 1.3 billion Chinese 
who are desperate to uh, improve their living standards, are interested in, in improving the, what they eat, um, to, you know, moving away from grain to protein, the dependency on water, it's an absolute drain on, on the um, global population. And it's something that I think is good in terms of you know, living standards improving, but the manner in which it, uh, it, it happens is absolutely critical for our survival. And can I just throw out a statistic? Um, just to illustrate what I mean. China, as I said, is 1.3 billion people. They've got 7% arable land, hence their aggressive uh, race rush for not just Africa, but across South America, uh, Australia, and, and much of uh, Eastern Europe. Um, but you know, already, the world we live in today, we're consuming 85 million barrels of oil a day. Um, and of, of that, 25% is consumed in the United States. In fact, all the oil that Saudi Arabia and Russia, the combined, the two of them, produce on a daily basis is completely consumed by the United States. This is wholly unsustainable if you expect that China is going to converge to Western standards. And that needs to be managed. It absolutely needs to be managed. We need to encourage people to go into innovative sciences to figure out solutions around water depletion and, and, and the fact that we don't have enough land. So it does sound more and more like a zero-sum world in, in, in Gideon Rachman's phrase. I want to ask a question about your title uh, and, and the timing of the story that you you tell, and here you're going to get the historian asks the economist a historical question, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is necessary, just to keep the economists in line. Um, because you, you, your subtitle of this uh, of ex excellent book, which I, 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 read, I read today with great pleasure. Uh, uh, <laughs> not, I didn't pay him, even not, though economists love not, money, we not, didn't pay it's him. It's not excessively long. Um, <laughs> 50 years of economic folly. Uh, is, is part of the subtitle. 50 years. I thought, oh God, it all started to go wrong just about when I was born. I wonder if it was my fault. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet, uh, at other points in the book, you actually date the rot from Bretton Woods, from the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, actually, as I recall, the West did pretty well uh, in the 1940s, 50s. And the 60s. Been during the World War, uh, World War II? It did very well. That's why it won. The US did. Right. Well, it's mostly Europe the US you're talking about here, isn't well, it? That's, the, yeah, there's an interesting not illusion. All. Yeah, but it's not is, all. It is mostly the, the US that you're talking about here, because let's face it, you'll sell more books there if you, <laughs> if you get it right. Um, Neil, such a cynic. <laughs> I know you're not cynical at Goldman not Sachs. Not at all. Not um, at all. We do God's never. work. Idealists. Um, <laughs> Can resist that. Sorry, um, but but and, but then reading it, I noticed that a significant part of the first half of the book is actually concerned with the recent financial crisis. And by the way, it's a superb account. It's one of the best concise accounts of why the financial crisis happened. But that started in 2007. So help me here. When did the West actually get lost? I don't believe it can have been in 1944. That was the beginning of the U.S. economy's glory golden years. So you've got to help me with the timing because. My reading of your book has the decline really much more recent than 50 years. I mean, okay. it's more like five years ago. All right, so your reading is slightly incorrect, I'm afraid. Um, in fact, I'm quite clear. I explicitly say um, in the book that the recent financial crisis is just the next step in this trundling down. It's got nothing to do with, oh my God, it was a financial crisis, that was the marker, now it's all over. It was just another step, a catalog, part of this catalog of uh, uh, policy error. Um, 
If we go back to Bretton Woods, uh, I don't know if you read this fantastic book called Dead Aid. It came out a couple of years ago. <laughs> I read that this morning, too. <laughs> it's also a small book, by the way. But anyway, um, you're talking about Bretton Woods being this I resounding... I wrote the prologue <laughs> to your book, Dambisa. It says, prefaced by Neil Ferguson on the cover of Dead Aid. Oh, yes. You've forgotten already. Mm, yes, I have. Actually. There's gratitude. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, if I go back, the reason why it's 50 years is because there have been a smattering of errors. So if you go back to, I can, you know, we can start from the Bretton Woods period. I would argue that the policies of, of aid um, and as, as a, a solution for economic development is just one example of that. But also remember, coming out of, the, um, of World War II is when essentially pensions became a big deal. Um, if you come to things like the financial crisis, that's a very recent thing. But subprime started, you know, decades ago, the whole idea of giving giving um, uh, underwriting cheap uh, housing and actually encouraging people to invest in one asset class, as I said earlier, and not in others, um, create, artificially creating attractive uh, returns in, uh, in, in the housing sector is not something that just happened in 2007. It's systematic planning over time. The um, idea of globalization. That's way back Margaret Thatcher, the era of Margaret Thatcher and uh, Ronald Reagan. That's again 19, 1982. That's not um, something that has happened uh, something that happened recently. So it is a smattering of these things, and of course, countries have had, you know, at various times have had various uh, sort of have played around with this. And I'm talking about Western countries. So the reason why it's 50 years is because it really it's an, it, it encompasses the period of when many different policies have been instituted, um, which have been essentially damaging. Okay, I'm wholly unconvinced by that. But, um, <laughs> Let's talk well, about the remedies. You can pick one moment. Oh, yeah, it was February 26th at 5 o'clock when America said, ooh, we're not going to put in policies that are going to be detrimental to us in a few years. I mean, it wasn't like that, obviously. But what you can say is that the, the East's catch-up is a very recent origin. I mean, the Deng Xiaoping reforms start in 78. India doesn't reform till 91. And, you know, they're, they're basically nowhere economically until relatively recently, if, you, if, you, if you're measuring percentages of GDP. Well, it, actually, it's funny you say that. I disagree because, once again, if you go back to Angus Madison's view, a much, much longer perspective on uh, economic growth, they, he, they would argue that the aberration of Western uh, economic growth is a, is a very recent thing, and we can quibble about GDP numbers and how, they've how Angus Madison calculated them, but the fundamental point is that many people in China would say, we're just re-emerging. This is not, uh, it was our, they made a mistake, our policymakers made, made, made a lot of errors, we came down, West you know, uh, raced ahead, and actually now we're just coming back to take our rightful place and as uh, the, the leaders yeah. of the, uh, of the this time world. no more Mr. Nice Guy exactly. <laughs> I hear that loud and clear when I'm in Beijing um, so let's get to remedies and then I want to open it up for a, a discussion because you, you do actually have a, a, a bunch of suggestions in the, in the second half of the book as to what the West and I, I have to say it is actually mainly what the US should do to, to try to address this problem and some of them are like motherhood and apple pie I mean it's kind of Thanks. hard to be against them uh, there should be better education in the United States Durr. there should be more R&D uh, you know there should yeah I mean no more housing subsidies I'm fine with all that the, the one that caught my eye was the idea that, that we should we should be trying to, try to tax overpaid sports personalities now here we move swiftly from from which <laughs> fine as long as they don't play for Arsenal because those guys earn their money but everybody else um, 
But actually, there was a puzzle in my mind. I was reading about how we need to do something about these skewed incentives because it's a, and it's an interesting argument because you say when people see, you know, Ronaldo getting paid so much, whatever it is, he's paid some vast sum every week, uh, then then they're drawn to try to become Premier League or or, or, or world class footballers, and of course most of them don't get to be uh, Ronaldo, and then they're just left with football skills, which are actually economically not that useful. Um, just in case any of you are out there every night training, you're not going to play for Manchester United. It's not going to happen. So what I was asking myself was, why does the same argument not apply to, say, investment bankers, who also get paid quite a lot of money? Uh, shouldn't they be getting a great big tax to try and discourage people from wasting their lives trying to become investment bankers? Well, first of all, um, let's, let me just clarify. Um, Neil's sweeping, dramatized version of my view. You spent too much time in America, by the way. You need to come back home to England. Um, or Scotland. Scotland. <laughs> um, but the point being, I don't advocate government intervention in um, managing salaries. And I'm not going to sit here and say, well, I think that you know, Ronaldo should get paid $25. The fact of the matter is, it's simply an argument that society has basically said, we think it's OK for footballers to get paid £100,000 a week, and we think it's absolutely okay for nurses to get paid £30,000 a year. And that's what society wants. I mean, the fact that the point about investment banks, if I may, if I may defend them for a second, and Good of luck. course they are getting, they are getting taxed. Um, I mean, I'm not here to advocate that the salaries are, are, are right. I mean, in, the, in the context of the, the point I was making, if a, invest, a failed investment banker still has mathematical skills, has got uh, you know, reading skills, and could probably, in fact most of them do, end up doing something else that could be productive for society as a whole. The problem is that a lot of the things, um, and if it, whether it's X Factor, which I absolutely love watching, um, or footballers or whatever, ultimately the problem is that a lot more people are taking that chance, they're taking that gamble, send their kids to go and play, um, to pl try and play soccer, but what happens is after they've come out of um, you know, failed uh, X Factor, what ends up happening is they've got no skills um, that are transferable. So we've got a global, or I should say a societal cost that we all have to bear um, for essentially encouraging our youngsters to go into areas that we know um, are not yielding the skills that society needs to gain in the longer term. Last question, and then, and then we'll open it up. The most radical things you save for the end, when you say, if the West is really to, to respond to this challenge, it has got to get tough. And it, it therefore has to stop handing over its intellectual property, in effect, for free to China. It has to think in terms of protectionism if the Chinese are going to continue manipulating their currency. And you even go so far as to say that the United States should consider defaulting on all or part of its, of its debt to China. I mean, that's pretty strong stuff and, and quite surprising, actually, coming from somebody I think of as, a, as an economic liberal, if not a fully paid neoclassical <laughs> synthesis gal. There's an insult somewhere in there. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's that, I'm just, so uh, I think you should tell us a little bit about how that works out. I guess from what you said there, that you would regard that as a sort of less good outcome than a more liberal, globalized solution in which the US gets its act together but stays in a global economy. But the second best solution you're saying is actually the end of globalization. Is, is, it that, is, well, is that okay. putting it fairly? So let me put it this way. Um, and I have to quote General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal, who was the head of the US uh, 
forces in Afghanistan. And he said, you know what, we've got to start from where we are, not where we would like to be. And the fact of the matter, and I say this uh, to African policymakers all the time, I'm like we can sit here and fight in Doha, oh, in, for the you know, Doha round, WTO round, until the cows come home. The fact of the matter is, they ain't going to change the subsidy policies against African countries. And in a similar stance, there's no point in us pretending that we don't live in a protectionist world. The fact of the matter is that we do, which therefore means that as nuclear as the suggestion is that America could become more protectionist, which, by the way, is not a recommendation. I'm simply saying it is not off the table. Um, they absolutely are going to consider that. They've got a very serious problem of unemployment in the United States. They've got a highly uneducated population. Um, they have a globally uncompetitive 50-odd, 30, 50 million people um, who are, just can't simply compete in manufacturing. What are they going to do with those people? Those people are still young enough to work, but they haven't got skills. We can talk about um, sort of pussyfooting around, oh, maybe we can do a bit of retooling and retraining, but as a practical thing today, what can we do? And I think because governments, as I said, are caught up in this trap of short-termism, a very live, real option is to, um, to go for protectionism. With respect to default, there are many economists, many uh, commentators of um, global macroeconomics and finance um, who will argue that the U.S. has already embarked on a stealth de uh, default. In fact, if you saw some of the headlines before um, President Hu Jintao's visit to the United States, their headlines were like, the Chinese are going there to say, wait a minute, don't mess up our assets. You know, they're holding, we've lent you a lot, all this money, and now you're trying to weaken the currency. Um, and so obviously, there's a real concern that um, they're already defaulting in a sense. Um, but do I really advocate that the U.S. should wake up tomorrow and say, oh, you know, we're going to default? No, nobody wants to live in that world. But it is something that's on the table. Um, and I would, I would also add that in terms of uh, what the United States needs to do, it, it's not borrowing per se that's the problem. The problem is that the United States has borrowed to the hilt to finance consumption. If they want to borrow, even now, the yields are so low in the United States. I mean, a five-year yield in, in real terms is you know, half a percent. They can go ahead and borrow as long as they're going to invest in real, uh, solving these real structural problems. We wouldn't be sitting here if they had invested in education. In fact, the world would be a completely different place. The problem is we've consumed so much, and everybody had a wonderful time, and now that the party's come to a screeching halt, everybody's um, upset and with China. There's way too much obsession with China. Forget China, they've got their own problems. Solve your own problems first. Well, not only solve your own problems, but yeah, I'll, I'll, amen to that. Not, not only solve your own problems, but now ask your own questions. Can I just remind you all uh, to ask a question? That has a question mark at the end of it, and you go up at the end of the sentence. Uh, we, we don't want speeches. We don't have time for them. We have 27 minutes left, and then, and then we must conclude. So if you have a question, uh, please uh, put up your hand, uh, and, uh, and the microphone will come to you, and then, uh, and then, and then wait for the microphone. So there's a, 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 a lady right there in the third row. And then a gentleman at the back in a, in a light blue shirt. Go ahead. Thank you for that wonderful speech. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the increasing levels of inequality, the growing inequality in the United States since the 1970s, and the relationship with the increasing inability of Americans to afford a good education and affordable houses. Thank you. Take two at a time or something like that. We could do two questions at a time. Um, so we'll go to the, the gentleman in the blue shirt at, at the back. 
Yes, thank you, Dambisa. Um, one decade which can look, uh, one um, continent rather, which can look back on a decade of consolidation after overcoming severe debt crises is Latin America. Um, what lessons do you think Latin America can teach Europe as it faces its own um, severe wave of debt crises now? Okay, so with respect to income inequality, huge problem. Um, if you look at Gini coefficients, things have actually been getting worse. And part of the problem, I mean, I, in the book I talk about this quite a bit because, um, and by the way, China's also got income inequality problems um, for those people who think that all's rosy in China. Um, but one of the problems in the United States in particular around income inequality, but also quite generally in, in Europe, is that the gains to globalization, and, and what I'm about to say is exacerbated this income inequality, the gains from globalization have accrued to people who have more um, capital, so people who've got capital have actually gained. The people who own labor have actually not gained. So what you've seen is that real wages in, the, in Europe and the United States have actually been flat. Now, let me just take a moment to explain a little bit more. Remember that during the period, of, um, in the, uh, period when we were starting to think about globalization, the key driver for globalization was, gosh, we make televisions, we make T-shirts, if we can just start to sell our goods to places like China with 1.3 billion people, we're going to make a killing. And our, and our domestic wages in Europe and the United States are going to go up because people are going to gain from that. So why hasn't that happened? Yes, it is partly because China and India and other big countries figured out, oh gosh, is this how to make a t-shirt? I can do that. Um, and in fact, I can do it for a fraction of the cost. And by the way, I can transport for you a t-shirt, get it into H&M, and you're going to pay a pound for the t-shirt. I mean, it's so cost effective. If you really think about what globalization has done, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. But in addition to that, if you look at the, well, why is it that wages have been flat, how have people who own labor, how have they gained? Well, they've gained because they had more access to debt. If you look at the United States now, their consumption to GDP ratio is around 70%. In China, it's about 30 to 35%. Basically, instead of having, putting pressure to say we want our wages to increase, we got access to more debt. And the problem has basically uh, essentially been translated into a situation where incomes will remain, remain flat, debt increased, and the people who've gained a lot, and if you're interested in this topic, there's a brilliant uh, research company called GavCal out of, uh, out of um, Hong Kong, and they call them platform companies. Basically, American registered or British registered companies that have most of their business uh, with employees outside. So it might be listed on the uh, FTSE or the New York Stock Exchange, but actually it's got employees outside, um, uh, outside the United States. And so the gains are on capital returns to the shareholders, which is just a small group of people. But by and large, uh, real wages have remained flat. Um, in respect to what could South America teach Europe, uh, gosh, very hard question. I think people ask me all the time, do I think Europe is going to default? And um, I try to, to take off my, my, uh, my economist hat because the fact of the matter is, as people say uh, in finance, when you're betting in the markets, don't bet based on what you think policymakers should do, bet based on what you think they are going to do. And Europe is a classic example of this. If you ask me, is Euro, the euro um, zone the right thing and that kind of thing, clearly there are massive glaring errors. These economies um, are divergent. I mean, Spain has got 20% unemployment, the debts in Greece and so on. We all know that story. Um, a completely different situation and structure from Germany. In fact, there are people who say Germany is actually decoupled from Europe because something like 50% of her trade is now with China. So there are lots of reasons for why the euro shouldn't be together. But if you're asking me, do I think it's going 
going to break up? Probably not. I think politicians will rally around it and, and stick together. Um, so what could they possibly learn from um, the situations in, in, uh, in South America? I think it's another lesson of how intractable uh, uh, problems can come to roost over a long period of time. I think if you look at economic growth across South America, it's been quite disappointing. Look back on statistics of Argentina. It was a, a, you know, a very promising. Um, um, but obviously has not got to uh, a point where, uh, the point that many people thought it would get to, and I think it's a lot of the structural debt problems that they've never been able to, to escape. My last point on, on the issue of debt, and then I'll move on, um, and South America versus Europe, uh, is that it, there's a great paper, uh, in fact it became a book, uh, by Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff called This Time is Different, uh, Eight Centuries of, uh, of de Debt Crisis, I think. Financial, so, financial folly. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, everybody's using this word folly. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's a brilliant book, and it's, you know, can you imagine eight centuries, and they go into great detail of what the implications are post a financial crisis in terms of your economic growth. And I think this is part of what, uh, Neil, you've written a lot about this, but the fact that it takes a long time to start uh, generating economic growth after you've come out of that. And I think what we've seen in, in Argentina and places across South America is exactly that. So, Yeah, maybe what they can learn from South America is how to do a really good default, uh, <laughs> which the Greeks should have done on the Argentine model when this all blew up yeah. first. There's a gentleman right up at the top there who uh, had his hand up first. That's him. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Professor Ferguson. Thank you very much. Dan Siebert, it's a very interesting talk. I have two very quick questions. Firstly, you talk about defaulting and what the Americans, I'd, I'd rather call sabotage and defaulting, but you didn't mention the long-term effect of the US actually defaulting, of which is a serious, will have serious long-term problems. But also, um, could um, you, you talk about pol political problems and solutions and economic problems and solutions. Are you optimistic that economists and politicians actually realize the problem and will actually change their behavior? Okay, so I... we'll take a, a question from the other side at the back. There's a gentleman, almost inaccessibly located, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, the microphone is being passed like a torch towards him. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much, Tambisa, for that wonderful presentation. Um, my question, I think Professor Ferguson has asked part of that question. Uh, your book, I haven't read it, but I think it's effectively an, an attack on uh, uh, capitalism. Would you say so? That's a... <laughs> There's a challenge for you. You know, if you say it is, there'll be a huge round of applause. This is the LSE. The beaver will have a headline. Goldman Sachs goes Marxist. <laughs> Um, okay, so with respect to defaulting, I mean, I'm not trying to say rush out and buy the book, although that would be nice, but I do talk a lot about the long-term implications. Of course, inflation, can you imagine if America's tomorrow, big headline, the United States defaults on its debt, even if it partially defaults or whatever, it would be enormous. The knock-on effects are incredibly large. But I do outline the scenario which uh, is in the book. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not advocating default. I'm simply saying, given where we are right now, they've got a huge amount of debt. The IMF projections into 2020 are sort of increasing to uh, uh, close to 100%. As I said, we just don't even know how much they really owe with, with this pension sort of fog. We, you know, there are a lot of liabilities. Look at some of the statistics in the book and elsewhere on Alzheimer's and these type of costs that are coming up, creeping in um, obesity, that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's a bad picture. I'm not saying default is a solution. I'm simply saying it's not, it's not off the table. 
Um, politics and economists, do they recognize and can they change behavior? We, we don't even have to be politicians and economists to recognize it. Everybody in this room knows that education is a problem, infrastructure is an issue, energy concerns. We know about this. So um, it's not about a knowledge of uh, what the issues are. I think uh, the second part of your question is the one where there's a sticking point. And this is about whether or not they can actually do something about it. And the reality is um, they, ha they haven't had to, they being politicians, because ultimately it is the policymakers that make decisions um, that we all operate under. Um, and so do I, am I optimistic that something's going to give. I think it will happen. It's just, you know, how, how bad must it get? Must, you know, if, we, if I come here and say it's 90% of school leavers who can't add 50 plus 2, maybe at that point we'll say, my God, now that is a serious problem. But it's clearly at 23%, we don't really seem to mind. Um, you know, people getting, paying paid 100,000 pounds a week, uh, you know, and, and nurses struggling on 30, 40, 50,000 pounds a year. We, society doesn't seem to be bothered about that, but you know what? Maybe it becomes an issue if you know footballers get paid a million or two million or five million pounds a week. Maybe maybe then society starts to step in. But obviously, um, even more urgent issues such as resource constraints, when we start fighting for more land or for water, for clean air, and so on, maybe that's when. In fact, there's a wonderful paper that came out a few years ago by Claire K L A R E A R E. Um, in foreign affairs, which talks a lot about uh, conflict, the origins of conflict, and it's not just clear. And you know, Paul Collier has written uh, on conf origins of conflict and resources being a key, a key issue. I mean, we're living through that. Iraq and places like that are clearly uh, wars of resource. So I do think that there may, might come a point um, when those issues become real and live. But for now. The, we, we do reward our policymakers for focusing on short term or having a myopic view of things, and they, they do kick you know kick things uh, over the long term, uh, and so I you know I am I am very worried, which is why why I wrote this book. Is my book an attack on capitalism? Um, please don't throw tomatoes at me. No, it's not. Um, I actually still maintain that capitalism is the best. A way of delivering, and it shows both both in terms of I would argue logic, but also in terms of evidence, it has been the best uh, a system at delivering uh, people out of poverty and creating economic growth. China, the Chinese are have adopted that model precisely, I would say, because or some semblance of the model precisely because they've seen decades, centuries of um, lagging behind from uh, you know from not having a more uh, economically competitive uh, economic system. Um, now, does that mean that we should all run roughshod and have free capitalism, free markets and all that? Clearly that's not a, a sustainable model. Um, but at the same time, and going back to what I was saying earlier, we do need a system that encourages innovation and entrepreneurship because that is what has moved the world. Whether it's the discovery of penicillin or um, you know, the, the computer, I mean, our ability to, to scale heights as humanity really stem from from things around, I think, the, the free market and capitalism. Can, can, I, can I just follow up on that question before we go back to the audience? Because it, it does seem to me that there could be a tension between your two books. Dead Aid was a, an argument against the state seeking to achieve economic development in Africa through aid, and it was an argument for the market as a solution to many of Africa's problems. This book seems more like an argument for, and here's a phrase that you use in the book, state-led development. What you seem to be saying is that now the Chinese are better at getting their people to study math and, uh, and better at doing R&D and, 
And, and therefore, I wonder if there isn't just a little bit of a tension in, in these, in, in these, between these two books, and in that sense, this is perhaps a less capitalistic book than the last one. Well, I mean, I think, look, in Dead Aid, um, I was very explicit that in order to resolve the problems of uh, economic uh, poverty in Africa, you absolutely need African governments front and center. Um, it's, it doesn't matter if uh, you know Neil Ferguson is sitting in London saying, you know, what's going on in Cote d'Ivoire is outrageous, or even if it is, if it's uh, David Cameron saying that. The fact of the matter is, until African governments themselves say, gosh, you know, providing economic growth and reducing poverty is a critical thing, and we're going to focus on that. Until that day, we're not going to solve development. How does that link into your question? Well, it's because. The issue is around incentives, um, which I, I pointed out earlier. And unfortunately, the aid system incentivizes African governments very much like the political system in the West incentivizes Western governments from doing what I would argue are the short-term politically expedient things. Um, in fact, very rationally, African governments, in fact, I can't tell you how many, at least two African governments have said to me, uh, presidents have said to me, Dambisa, people might paint us as greedy idiots, you know, in Africa. We're completely rational. You know, the more poverty there is in my country, the more aid I get. In fact, the less I have to work because there's going to be some aid agency coming in to write my reports and do this. In fact, having a war, big plus. More disease, hilarious because we get more aid. And that's the negative incentive cycle that I'm talking about. And in the same way, if governments ignore pensions, don't want to talk about the boogeyman that's known as healthcare costs, let's just focus on pointing fingers at those damn bankers and their bonuses. Nobody wants to say, well, hang on, what happened with the policy? What was going on around there? If we don't want to have that discussion, well, this is what you end up with. You have a situation where we can split hairs and say, is it capitalism, is it communism, whatever, but the fact of the matter is if governments are not front and center delivering the policies that create the right incentives, you end up with where we are now. So the way the Chinese can really finish the Americans' off is to give them aid. That's what who should... Aren't they? Aren't they already doing that? All right, so, some more questions. Uh, as a young man there with, uh, with his hand up. Uh, Thank you very much for a great lecture. You know, uh, I keep on wondering that the, the Ben Benaki is just behind you and you keep on putting the idea that... <laughs> so you are Don't saying, frighten me like that. <laughs> 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 you are, you're throwing the idea up, you know, the, the whole kind of thing. Okay, thank you very much for a great lecture. It's a pleasure to be here. The, the question I do have is that... I think you speak faster than I do. I can barely understand what you're saying. I'm sorry. Could you okay. just slow down a bit? Sorry. Okay. Uh, actually, I'm a bit concerned about the idea of globalization. You know, I, I just remember that in, 2000, uh, in 2009, in March, uh, we have a G20 summit over here, and, you know, the President Lula, he's saying that, that, the, that this crisis, the recent crisis, is created by the white people with blue eyes, you know. So <laughs> I think so, uh, it's, it's much more owning the problem, you know. I, I do strongly feel that the policymakers at the top of the helm, you know, they are not taking the responsibility. What's your opinion regarding that? Well, I just say black cats or white cats, I don't care as long as it catches mice. <laughs> you know, I think to start splitting hairs about, oh, this and that. I mean, look, these countries, all of them, Brazil, the, let's call them the BRICS, um, and well, maybe excluding Russia in some sense, but um, China, India, Brazil, certainly many other emerging countries are absolutely obsessed with domestic demand issues. I mean, they were growing at 10% domestic demand. Um, of, of course, globalization is one piece of the puzzle, but I mean, just 
I say this all the time, I come from a, a, a tiny little country, you know, 10 million, maybe 15 million people, nobody cares. It's a small landlocked country in the, you know, jungles of Africa. The fact of the matter is we failed in my own little country to produce economic growth. The population of Zambia is not even a real city in China, and yet the Chinese were asking them to develop one, an additional billion people to bring them to our levels of economic standards. I mean, what they have to do is unfathomable. I just, I can't even imagine what, it, you know, going, I was just in, in China in November. I, it's just, every time I go there, I'm just amazed at what they have to contend with. Um, and so I don't even presume to start talking about what the, what the political environment should be like. Uh, but I, what I will say is that I do think, focusing again on what Europe and the U.S. are doing, I think there are inherent political problems uh, in the system that mean that we're not focusing on the big issues. There's a lady down here with a pen who's eager to ask a question. Yes, madam. Thanks. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, I'm from ActionAid, so we'll have to agree that aid dependency is a problem but disagree on the solution. Um, I, I'm really fascinated by the issue of resource scarcity as one of the key challenges that you identify. And linked to that, China today became a bigger donor to Africa than the World Bank, which shows how it's accessing in some way resources in, in the region. So I'm struck that the, the US and the EU may have a challenge in opportunity cost of investing domestically in things like education and infrastructure, or in using that investment that you say is so desperately needed in investing in some of those very scarce resources. Shall we take one more question? Okay. That's, uh Gentleman, very well-dressed gentleman down the second row from the front. Tambisa, uh, thank you for um, a masterly synopsis and for not being deflected by Neil's interjections. Now, <laughs> which, uh, She's quite I've shabbily often, dressed. I've often had to cope with. <laughs> Listen, um, I have a question which maybe both of you could answer. Uh, the salient feature of the history of the world in the last 50, 60 years has been the absence of a major conflict. And some people might think that that was linked to a relatively stable economic system. You've compellingly described a series of very deep-seated structural inadequacies, producing, if they haven't already done, a serious dysfunction amongst Western societies. Is there not a real risk that that is going to end up producing some terrible conflict? Isn't that the logic of what seemed to me to be the very pessimistic appraisal that you've delivered today? Uh, yes. <laughs> So the answer is yes. I mean, that's, that's why I was referring to Claire's book, because I, the, um, uh, the one in foreign affairs, because I do think resources uh, do create an environment of, of clashes. I mean, already, uh, just look around the world. Uh, Iraq, why are we in Iraq? I mean, is it really democracy? You know, why do we care about uh, what's going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Is it really that we really care about women getting raped in East Congo, or is it really about something else? I mean, you don't have, I'm not making it up, contemporaneously, we're already uh, in the middle of these conflicts. Could it be escalate to become a full-blown global conflict? You know, I think, I don't see why not. I mean, I think we could actually continue on this path with such a, you know, enormous pressures uh, um, in terms of global resources, that it could escalate into that. It might not just be a global conflict, but even think of China. I mean, when I, one of the themes is this uh, race against the revolution. If China cannot continue to deliver economic growth for its population, I mean, God, God knows what will happen there. I mean, people are now have got the taste of economic growth. How does a population, uh, how are you going to convince that population that 300 million of them now live like Westerners, but the other billion have to continue to eke out a living? 
Um, and this is why, you know, if you look at the 12th um, five-year plan from the, uh, the Chinese government, every year the, gov the Chinese government put out a five-year plan outlining their key features of what they're going to do. The last one came out in October 2010. It's worth a read. Um, it's very interesting. But they're absolutely focused on um, trying to encourage, to subsidize, actually, um, uh, public goods, things like education and health care and social programs. The, the government's going to take responsibility for that and encourage uh, encourage people to spend more on what they call white goods, so washing machines and so on, so that people can actually get improve their uh, their livelihoods through <coughs> consumption, if you will. But, you know, I, the short answer is yes. I mean, I'd love to hear what Neil thinks about that, but I think that's my statement. And, and do you want to say any more on the issue of China and, and African Commodities, ah, specifically sorry, the yes. question before. Um, so, what do I think about China, uh, China in Africa? Which I think is the, the, the more general question. Um, I, I, in my last book, I, I had a chapter called "The Chinese Are Friends." I mean, the, the way my mother tells it, it's always good for a woman to have more than one suitor. And I think that part of Africa's <laughs> part of Africa's problem is that she's been madly in love with Europe and the United States and been completely abused. Um, and so now we've got a new suitor in town who, you know, yes, is coming with, um, with, you know. Perhaps some people would argue dodgy trinkets, but you know, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, you know, people want to see an improve, improvement in livelihoods. They want to see infrastructure. They want to see um, investment on the continent. And unfortunately, uh, like it or not, the Chinese have delivered in that. And it's not all about aid. I mean, they are building roads. Uh, they are investing in things outside commodities. I and mean, I don't know if people know this. 85% of the stocks that trade on African stock exchanges are non-commodities. So as much as Africa gets this headline, oh, it's commodities, 85% are non-commodities related. The Chinese have bought um, Standard Bank, 20% uh, stake. They're buying um, telecommunication companies. I mean, they're, they're in Africa for a, 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 sorry, a bigger trade than just the commodity trade. Um, it's, it's a lost opportunity from the World Bank and the IMF and, and the, the West. It's a pity because proximity-wise, Africa is just a hop, skip, and a, you know, a jump away. But it's, a, it's an opportunity blown. And I'm not saying it's perfect. There are obviously issues around labor, obviously issues around skirmishes, around environmental concerns. But that is the responsibility of African policymakers. That's why we need to get to a place where Africans themselves can hold their governments accountable. I cannot tell you how many times I've been across Africa, north, south, east, west, in audiences like this, young Africans, smart, educated, some of them, you know, many of them working as professionals. And they say, you know, what they can't stand the most is getting lectured by the West about not taking money from China because Chinese are human rights violators, environmental things. And then the next thing they see is China lends to America, you know, 30% of American treasury. So maybe it's complete hypocrisy. So either we're peers or we're not. And if we're not peers, just tell us and we'll get it and we'll sort ourselves out. But don't try and pretend that actually you think we're equals and then wag a finger at China and say, don't give money to Africa because you're distorting the markets. But hey, we'll take uh, you know 30% of our debt in, in form of China. China's investment. I mean, it's complete hypocrisy, and that is unfair. As a young, young man in a bright yellow T-shirt, just before he gets the microphone, uh, Dambisa, after you um, uh, heaped opprobrium on the 23% of people in this country who can add together 50 plus 2, I think you ought to uh, concede that uh, the Chinese cannot have a five-year plan every year. Uh, Did I say that? <laughs> oh, yes, they can. Because the, 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 they have to happen every five years, otherwise it wouldn't be the 12th five-year plan that they just had. Sorry about that, but I, I, I like to keep mathematical standards up. Uh, 
especially where economists are concerned. Yes, sir. Can I just say, Neil Ferguson is sounding like the economist who gave me a bad review today, but they're criticizing my grammatical errors and omissions as opposed to my argument. So, Neil, I would encourage you to focus on the key points here instead of nitpicking. <laughs> yes. You focused on this with your last question, sort of, but do you think Africa has the potential to like, become a force to be reckoned with from an economic like, standpoint? But, sorry, was there another question? You said two questions. Oh, yeah, that was the question. Do, no, do there's you one think... question. Oh, you you, want we another? were taking two, weren't we? Oh, we can two have... To go. Oh, you can have... Oh, look, there are a whole bunch of people. <laughs> Suddenly put their hands up. Now, th this puts me in a difficult position because somebody has somebody has to has to lose. Um, why, why, did, why did I go... I, actually, you had your hand up before, madam, I think I noticed, so with the black hat. Yes, if you could take... Have the honour of the last question. Thank you. Um, in Kind of piggying back and on his question on Africa, um, as China becomes the new hegemony, how is Africa going to adapt? And then I'm also looking at the gen if China becomes the new hegemony, um, labor and wage. Because as you mentioned before, wage is stagnant at the moment. But I, and as an economist, to me it's declining. It will be declining as you look at China becoming hegemony and also the, the increase of the global population. So we'll literally be. Um, you know, working for bread, basically. That's what I'm asking. Thanks very much. Dambisa. Okay, so listen, I am an, an, I'm African and therefore I'm incredibly optimistic. Um, you know, let's just go back to the model I outlined earlier, capital, labor, and productivity. Capital-wise, I don't have to spend time talking to you about uh, things like resources and all that kind of stuff, which we've been talking about for centuries, by the way. Oh, Africa's got so much oil, it's got so many minerals. Yeah, okay, so first of all, capital-wise, I think that it's pretty clear that that happens. The other thing I would say around capital is read uh, The Mystery of Capital by uh, Hernando de Soto. He talks about the fact that there is capital in all these countries. Unfortunately, property rights are the impeding thing, and I think there's a strong argument, a strong reason uh, why that, that is, is actually true. Um, labor. A billion people on the African uh, continent, 60% uh, of them are under the age of 24. So as far as I'm concerned, we've got, we've got labor dynamics on our side. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's quite an important thing that we should not, we should not uh, take for granted. Um, with respect to productivity, we can import productivity, things like technology and so on. I mean, I don't see why there should be any, any constraints around this. I should point out as well that Africa has the largest uh, uh, amount of untilled arable land left on the planet. I mean, if issues of around nine billion people um, are going to be a problem coming on, you know, come in where our population will be in 2050, we as a continent should be a, uh, the breadbasket bread basket to the world. Um, now, I will say on that, and this is why I wrote the first book, if you look at the African continent, there are a billion people go hungry on this planet every single day. It's a billion people. And by the way, just to show you how distorted the world is, there are a billion people who are medically obese on the same planet. So just talking about just pure misallocation right there, it seems to be an issue. But with respect to Africa specifically, out of the billion people who go hungry every day, the largest proportion of the people who go hungry are in Africa. Now, how do you, quote unquote, square the circle with, and economists think in demand and supply, as you know, that you've got 500 million people who are starving every single day. And, the, and on the same continent, you've got a supply of land, um, which everybody is racing for. You know, the Chinese, the Brazilians, South Koreans, and so on. That, to me, smacks of a structural problem. 
that does not suggest to me uh, anything more than that. And that's why I wrote Dead Aid, because I think we, again, love Band-Aid solutions. Oh, oh, quickly, let's just go and give them more aid. Let's call in Bono. Bono can save the day. <laughs> but we're not dealing with the structural problem, which is that we've got demand and supply. How do we incentivize Africans to grow crops? It's not that they can't. It's just that over a 50-year period, if I may, Neil, very systematically, African, Africans have been locked out of the international markets, not been able to sell our food. People have been out of work, stopped growing their own food, no transportation, no infrastructure. Um, and over a period of time, you've ended up with a catalog of, of, of policy errors that have led to the disaster that is the, the continent today. Um, it, having said that, I'm eternally optimistic. I mean, I think you know, I'm probably not going to be part of that generation. Um, Neil said I was young. I actually don't have a birth certificate because I was born at a time when they did not issue birth certificates to children born to two black parents. So I'm, that, I'm old enough for that. Um, and, but I will say to you that uh, I am optimistic for the next generation because I think um, once uh, us old fuddy-duddies are long gone, um, there's a hope for the Twitter generation. Well, uh, this all makes me think that... I didn't answer her question. Oh, I thought in? you did. Are you just interrupting? Well, I thought you had to go. You said you had <laughs> to did. go to the circus. Oh, it's my fault now. Um, your question sounds Stay, like... Stick around. <laughs> your question sounds like very much um, like what Greenspan talks about a lot, that the fact that over time there'll be so many people, wages will continue to decline. Um, you know, who knows? I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions. Um, I think it would, be, it would be good if more people could get the opportunity to, to you know, su survive and uh, provide livelihoods for themselves, which is what people want across the world. But um, I don't know what really ends up happening with respect to, to wages. Maybe Neil has an opinion. I'm sure he's dying to tell us anyway. <laughs> I was going to wrap up in a really positive, warm way, <laughs> changing my mind rapidly. <laughs> well, uh, all of this makes me wonder if, if China Africa is going to be the next <laughs> concept as your hungry mouths and empty arable land come together with a great wave of Chinese in investment. Um, you talked a lot this evening at, at about incentives and I just want to remind everybody what her incentive to be here is uh, because books are being sold outside the theatre and uh, uh, you can buy them if you haven't already and when you've bought the book uh, Dambisa is willing to sit here and, and sign it. Uh, uh, so what you need to do, I'm told, I'm reading this from a script I was handed, is you have to get the book and then come to the stage and the, oh, the queue okay. will start there outside uh, the theatre. That, that just about wraps it up. When I uh, wrote the preface to your last book, I said that what we needed in the debate on aid was less Bono and more Moyo, and I stand by that. Uh, <laughs> please thank Dambisa Moyo.